that will continue to be challenges five and ten years from now. People will feel anxiety. Depression will be reality. It always it has been. It's a recorded history of humankind. But in the state of Maine, the people will know they can get help, and there's opportunities there you know, to address these problems. I do think that the stigma around mental health will continue to decrease, and I think that's really, really important in terms of people getting the help they need and also for there to be funding for the services. That's Jeff Hecker, professor of psychology at the University of Maine, and Sandy Butler, a professor of social work, talking about the state of mental health in Maine, particularly in the state's rural areas. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Maine Question Podcast. It will likely not be a shock to anyone that anxiety and depression are increasing for a lot of folks these days. Economic upheaval, political unrest, not to mention the pandemic, can be blamed for much of that rise. Some estimates put the rate of depression at around 30 million in the U.S. The numbers for anxiety disorders are even higher, affecting some 40 million people or more. These issues are often more common in rural areas. Isolation, lack of opportunity, and the lack of people who can help are some key contributing factors. Much of Maine is rural in nature, so for many, these issues hit pretty close to home. One in four children in Maine suffer from a mental health disorder during their childhood years, compared to one in six nationally. Maine's suicide rate and percentage of adults with mental health issues is also higher than the national average. 10 of Maine's 16 counties have insufficient mental health coverage, and about half the population in those areas are not getting the help they need. Well, now an effort is underway to help address the shortage of mental health professionals in Maine's rural areas. The psychology program at UMaine, along with the School of Social Work, have received funding and they are putting together a team that will train folks who can help with these issues. Students in the program will become clinical psychologists, social workers, mental health and substance abuse professionals. We spoke about these efforts with Jeff Hecker and Emily Haig from UMaine Psychology Program and Sandy Butler from the School of Social Work. It's great to, uh, to visit with you on what is certainly an important topic. Maybe let's go around the table, so to speak, and have you introduce yourselves and maybe just give us a, just a sentence or two why you're involved in this project. What, what motivates you to be interested in, in what you're studying here? Maybe, Emily, let's start with you. Thanks. Um, my name is Emily Haig, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Psychology. And currently, I'm serving as the director of clinical training for our doctoral program in clinical psychology. And I guess that's that's in that role. That's probably the main reason why um, I'm interested in this topic. Um, really looking at ways that we can maximize the training we provide at the doctoral level so that it truly meets the needs of the state. Sandy, how about you? Hi, yeah, I'm Sandy Butler. I'm a professor at the School of Social Work, and I'm the director and the MSW coordinator as well. And very similar to Emily, I'm, I'm concerned about our students getting the best preparation possible. Almost all of our students stay in the state of Maine. Most of them work in rural areas, and so having them be able to meet the extreme needs of, peop of our rural populations is, is um, the motivation for me. And last but not least, Jeff, how about you? Well, thanks, Ron. Yeah, uh, my name is Jeff Hecker. I'm professor of psychology. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. I, I've been at the University of Maine for 35 years, and uh, over that time, uh, I've held a variety of positions, and, and through those positions, I've developed a, a great uh, love for the state, and I think also somewhat of an appreciation of the challenges that the uh, state faces. And so 
Uh, for me personally, I'm shifting into back into a faculty role and really looking for something that I, uh, I could sink my teeth into and that I really cared about. And uh, the opportunity to collaborate uh, with the School of Social Work uh, and working with the clinical psychology program arose and, and is targeted exactly at, at what I think is really important, which is uh, helping Maine to be a great place to live. Well, you all certainly bit off a, a big chunk in terms of a, 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 um, an issue and a project to take on. Maybe let's start here. The, the big picture overview of the, the state of physical and mental health and well-being in rural Maine these days. Where is it? How is it trending? Uh, what direction are we headed in? I'll take a stab at that. I, I've said I, I love the state of Maine, and it, it's a wonderful place, and yet it faces a variety of challenges. Uh, there are common uh, health problems that are common around the United States, but the rates of those problems are even higher in the state of Maine. Uh, Maine has higher suicide rates, for example, than the national average, and higher substance abuse rates than the national average. But if you look then within the state, if you look at the rural counties, you see that, that uh, their problems and the challenges are, are even worse. Uh, rural Maine has a higher median age, and, and I'm sure everyone here knows that Maine itself has the highest median age in the country, but the rural areas are, have the higher age. They have higher rates of common health problems like obesity, uh, opioid abuse, uh, diabetes, and, and the higher death rates from common conditions like heart disease and cancer. What's particularly, I think, challenging, you talk about the, the state, the, the status of these problems, they're exacerbated by the relative shortage of healthcare providers. If you look in the rural areas of the state, uh, you look per capita, there are fewer physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, uh, than in the more metropolitan parts of the state. And of course, our interests, uh, there are fewer uh, clinical social workers and clinical psychologists per capita in the rural parts of the state. So, you know, the, the health and mental health challenges are exacerbated uh, by a relative dearth uh, of providers. And looking forward, there's not an easy solution for that. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, they, they, uh, they, they, we're all aging, including the clinical social workers and psychologists. And the state has looked and said there's a need for an influx of, of people with the right kind of training to help address the, the kind of problems the state is facing. So what kinds of things are mental health workers, social workers, psychologists doing to address these needs? Uh, what does the field look like today versus what we might think of as a, an older stereotype? Sandy, let's start with you. A hallmark of social, the social work profession has been and continues to be helping marginalized, vulnerable populations and working to change systems to better meet their needs. And throughout the country, clinical social workers provide about 60% of the mental health services people receive. So social workers are crucial in helping meet the gap that Jeff was just talking about here in rural Maine. And another essential aspect of social work is seeing the individual within their environment. What obstacles do they face in meeting their potential? In addition, um, and so in addition to individual change, we address large system change, and sometimes that means policy change, working on community initiatives, things like increasing broadband or transportation, very important in rural areas, or the minimum wage. And our social work students actually work with advocacy organizations and our um, statewide professional organization to, to work on such bills in the state legislature. Some of the current trends in social work include a more focused attention to trauma and providing trauma-informed care, 
Another trend is incorporating technology, such as telehealth, which we'll be doing in this project. And a third trend in the field is recognizing and amplifying the importance of social workers in the health field. And so integrated behavioral health fits here. And so this is like helping individuals cope with difficult diagnoses or being an advocate for a client in the healthcare system. A persistent stereotype of social workers is that they are the ones that take your children away who work for Child Protective Services. And there are some really hardworking and committed social workers in the Department of Health and Human Services working to make the best decision possible for children facing neglect and abuse, but most CPS workers are not even trained social workers. And many people who call themselves social workers are, are not, do not have social work degrees. So I just wanted to clarify that. Emily, from a psychologist's point of view, what kinds of things are being done to, to help this situation? Psychology as a field is trying to um, address this need in a couple of different ways. We recognize the need to, to scale and become more efficient with our services and, and able just to meet the greater demand. So like Sandy said, telehealth has become a, you know, a major modality for providing services. And with the pandemic and in our own um, clinic on campus, we certainly became proficient in providing those services and, and really found actually that they were quite helpful in reaching folks that otherwise might not have come to our, our clinic on campus. And we've been able to retain them um, because some of the barriers of, of getting to treatment are eliminated with telehealth. Similarly, to social work with this notion of um, integrated behavioral health, what we're trying to do is, is kind of embed ourselves in, um, in a team setting. So perhaps if you imagine a primary care setting where there are, are different health providers, um, doctors, PAs, social workers, psychologists. So we're kind of embedding ourselves there so that we are able to receive warm handoffs from, say, a physician and really provide an immediate um, intervention that will have an impact and sort of reduce all the, the hoops and barriers that may get in the way of getting immediate attention to some mental health issues. Another way that, that I think psychology and in particular our, our training program at, at the University of Maine is hoping, trying to address some of these needs um, is to, to look at partnering with the state and trying to kind of leverage their needs by providing well-trained um, doctoral students to provide clinical services in, in exchange for, for funding for assistantships. And we've also been working pretty diligently to um, expand our training program. We've been a relatively um, small training program with a few number of faculty. And we've been working with the university, with partnerships at the state level, pursuing federal grants, working with private donors to try to really increase the number of students that we can get in the program, get in the pipeline and remain in Maine to, to meet the needs. So if you look on the UMaine News website and you see, you look under this topic, there's a lot of initiatives and a lot of work going on in this area. It's sort of hard to, to keep it all straight. So maybe, maybe you can break down the various proposals and projects. How do they differ? How do they work together? And as always in academia, we love our acronyms, right? So there's one here, uh, R-I-B-P-H-C. Maybe let's start there. That's Sandy, that's you. What, what does that stand for? And just, just a thumbnail of what some of these projects are about. And we've been trying to figure out how to pronounce this um, acronym, and we're calling it RIBC, I think. And it's the Rural Integrative Behavioral Health and Primary Care Project. And it's funded through um, the Health Resources and Services Agency through the Federal Department of Health and Human Services in response to their Behavioral Health Workforce Education and Training Program. 
and it's focused on training students in behavioral health to meet workforce needs, and the bulk of the money goes to student support. It's a four-year program, and each year it'll support 20 um, graduate students in social work and two clinical psychology doc doctoral students. This happens in their final year of their academic programs, and they'll be in field placement supervised by experienced practitioners focused on integrated behavioral health with the aim to increase the number of sites associated with primary care, as Emily mentioned, and with interdisciplinary teams as the project progresses. And so some of our sites currently are Acadia Hospital, Penobscot Community Health Center, Aroostook Mental Health Center, Wabanaki Health and Wellness, the Behavioral Health Center, Job Corps of Bangor, and Mount Desert Island Hospital. And so to ground the students in their learning in the field, they'll participate in a seminar that's taught by um, Jeff and um, a project coordinator who, that we're hiring right now. That will meet bi-weekly, and there'll also be a continuing education series that's open to the students and practitioners and their supervisors. Ultimately, students will receive a certificate in rural integrated behavioral health from participating in all parts of the program. They will then, on graduation, work in medically underserved areas. Jeff, I know you're involved in several of these projects. Maybe you could talk about uh, what your end of this looks like. As uh, Sandy mentioned, I'll be playing a role in the, in the RIBSI uh, project. Uh, co-teaching a class on integrated behavioral health and, and working with my colleagues in, so, uh, in the School of Social Work uh, to expand the number of placements uh, for our students. And I also have a role in this continuing education series that Cindy alluded to. Our goal is to get the partners together to form a, a, a working group that says, look, what are the, what are the needs uh, for practitioners in the, in the community? And we as the, the research uh, university use our national connections to bring to bring the highest quality continuing ed here but I'm also engaged in some research that's in its uh, early stages but uh, again somewhat opportunistically there there's some really interesting things going on in treating people who are really on the spectrum of mental health disorders sort of at the severe end people with schizophrenia and schizophrenia spectrum disorders those folks are, are uh, have very you know significant challenges uh, and they pose challenges to their communities and their families. There have been some interesting research in the last uh, couple of decades showing that if you can get these people connected to sort of multi-faceted uh, treatment very early, if you can see the signs early and intervene early, intervene pharmacologically, intervene with their families, uh, provide education, help them to support in school and, and, uh, and jobs, they, can do, they do very well, and they do very well in the long run. So I was kind of excited about that research. There's some very interesting work going on down in the Portland area. Uh, they have something called the PEER program, the Portland Identification and Early Referral Program, that was really a national leader in this. So I'm intrigued by the idea of trying to replicate, or actually I shouldn't say replicate, because we know it won't work. What works in Portland won't work in uh, rural Maine. But to take what what we can from that project and apply it in rural areas. And so we form partnerships with Acadia Hospital. They're very interested in, in this work and trying to develop early intervention programs. And also with my colleague uh, uh, at the University of Maine Machias, uh, Dr. Lois Ann Kuntz, who's been a great partner in this. She's uh, very well connected in Washington County. And then we've also connected with the folks at Maine, uh, Maine Medical Center Research Institute on the research side. But what we're looking at is trying to see, you know, the current status of people who are in rural Maine, and we're focusing right now on Washington County, and what is the, we refer to it as pathways to care that they take. 
Some arrive through their primary care doctor, some arrive through law enforcement, some arrive through the school system, trying to understand those pathways to then design ways to intervene to identify these folks earlier and getting them connected with treatment. So I think it complements the RIBSI program in that we're engaged in some of this research. We'll be working with some of our same partners um, who are engaged in the, in the training on examining, this, uh, examining the challenge from a research perspective. Emily, I know there's some funding and some gifts that came in to help w with this effort. Maybe you could uh, speak to that and, and a th thumbnail of um, how that's helping the cause. Sure, yeah. So for the past several years, we've been really fortunate to um, be working with the Albert B. Glickman Family Foundation. Um, this uh, foundation has a really long-standing commitment to addressing mental health issues in Maine. More recently, they've been um, interested in increasing high-quality access to mental health care in Maine. Last year, about this time, uh, with the support of the Glickman Foundation and the university, the clinical program launched the Glickman Fellowship in Clinical Psychology. And the fellowship is designed to specifically meet this increased demand for psychologists. Um, and, and what we did with this fellowship is, is we tried to figure out, well, how can we get more psychologists in Maine? And we looked at the literature and it really said that the number one way to do so is to recruit students with a rural background from the area that you want them to remain in. And so the Glickman Fellowship was designed to do just that. So last year we welcomed Lindsay Lagerstrom. Um, she's a Presque Isle native. Um, she is um, enrolled in our doctoral training program and she's training to become a clinical neuropsychologist. And upon graduation, her intent is to return to the county and to practice and to fill a gap. I believe currently there are maybe possibly zero neuropsychologists in that area. More recently, we um, have worked with the Glickman Family Foundation um, on another project, and they made a, a very generous donation to our program. The aim of, of that donation is to provide us with the resources to really increase our capacity, our training capacity, to meet these workforce shortest shortages. So with this support and with the university's commitment to sustain this gift, we will be recruiting two new tenure track faculty members, um, two additional uh, doctoral students, and a professional staff position to help coordinate uh, experiential training experiences across the state at both the graduate and the undergraduate level. So this fall, we will begin our search. We're going to be looking for a tenure track faculty member with expertise in dissemination and implementation science. And what that means is that that faculty member will have expertise working with communities throughout the state to try to implement and maintain mental health care delivery uh, programs. And so for the second uh, tenure track hire, we're looking to recruit a faculty member with experience in substance use and or trauma. Um, and really, we're, we're so excited. We think these hires will have a transformational impact on our graduate and undergraduate training, as well as on the local communities. If you look around today, there's certainly no uh, shortage of things to make people anxious and tax their mental health, no matter where they live. <laughs> I guess that's uh, the state of the world we live in right now. But uh, how do the issues and problems for rural residents differ from other demographics? You mentioned, you know, access to services and care. That's certainly a big factor. Uh, isolation and, and, you know, a number of other factors, I'm sure, uh, work into this. But how does their situation differ from 
you know, the state of mental health overall or from other demographics? You know, I think you've hit on some of the key things, Ron. I mean, uh, the first is 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 the is the relative isolation, and these communities. I'm sure you've seen the 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 news recently are are shrinking. Um, uh, when we look at the uh, 2020 census versus 2010, uh, the rural parts of the uh, of the state are shrinking in size, and particularly shrinking in young uh, uh, people. The consequences of that just sort of play out. I, I you know, have kind of an interest in youth sports, and notice that that. There may be no football at the high school level in Washington County because there aren't enough uh, young people to, uh, uh, to to form teams. Uh, obviously, that you know isn't a national crisis, but I think it's a little uh, picture of what happens. And so there's an opportunity for youth to get together and form a sense of team and and um, and form friendships and be collegial, and that's gone. And so I think that isolation uh, is is a significant factor. And then I think the ones that you referred to, once folks, you know, experience, um, when people are experiencing problems, can they get help? Can they interact with people who can identify that, yes, they need help and get them connected? You know, we're talking um, in one of our projects in uh, collaboration with University of Maine Machias, we've gone out and interviewed people in the healthcare industry, but also schools, social services, and, um, and law enforcement, and just to, uh, had conversations with them about uh, what, what are their experiences when they run into a youth who they suspect is having difficulties? And the number one thing we heard is that, uh, you know, they can, it's not that they can't see these uh, kids, it's that they don't know where to turn. Um, they, the, the, the resources that they turn to, you know, working hard, trying very hard, uh, but uh, often have very long waiting lists and, and uh, uh, can't provide uh, immediate care. So the, the newer kind of ways that people uh, connect uh, through uh, online, et cetera, you know, in rural areas, even those are challenges. So it's one of the things we're looking at in, in the uh, RIBSI program is how do we reach rural areas? And assuming that everyone has Wi-Fi and connect is probably not a, right, uh, a fair assumption. And how else uh, can we connect with folks uh, to provide good care? Sandy, I know in social work, there's work being done on opioid use and abuse and, and aging. Some people might wonder, how does that work with workforce development? Is, is workforce development part of what's going on here? Yes, exactly, Ron. Thank you. Both of those um, projects are funded by HRSA the way RIPSI is, and they both are focused on workforce development. They're areas, as you say, we have great needs in Maine and across the country to increase uh, workforce um, and health. So the, the first one I'll talk about is, uh, we call it POWER. Of course, we have an acronym. It's Professional Opioid Workforce Response. And it is, uh, it's structured very similarly to the, um, the RIBSI program. It's just three years, and we're in our final year now. And each year, 10 MSW students have participated as trainees. It also has a, a biweekly seminar. Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong, an assistant professor in our program, is the director of this, and she teaches that seminar. And she's arranged colloquium. Last year, we had a couple great colloquium. Uh, one was a partnership with Wabanaki P Public Health and the Penobscot Nation and Micmac Health um, that um, looked at indigenous wellness and healing and substance use disorder treatment. And then the second was uh, um, focused on trauma-informed services for those experiencing substance misuse concerns. And the training sites for POWER have some overlap with the training sites that we're using in RIPSI and also some others. They have uh, a training site at Pleasant Point Health Center and um, the Indian Health Services at Penobscot Nation and a few others. 
Then the other project also funded by HRSA is um, the Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program. And this actually comes out of the University of New England and the Center on Aging um, and the School of Social Work and a few other units on campus are um, participating. Um, and it is to increase geriatric healthcare workers. So the other units on campus are social work and psychology, nursing and nutrition, all um, graduate programs. They have periodic interdisciplinary field visits together, which I think is a great learning opportunity. And they, they're also lunch and learn events with speakers. And this year, the social work students are working with the um, volunteer program for older adults, RSVP, to create a telehealth simulation. So it's very exciting. And, and there are usually three to five social work students in it each year. And it's in its third of five years now. For both psychology and social work, how set up are you now to, to meet the needs and take on these problems? And how much of a difference will these new efforts make to, to sort of fill those gaps? Maybe, Emily, let's start with you. It's a really exciting time. I think we're seeing a real renewed energy and commitment um, to mental health and a real sense of genuine collaboration, uh, not only across the system, as Jeff mentioned with Yume Machias, but with, you know, within our own uh, university, working with all these different disciplines, with social work and nutrition. We certainly have relationships with um, the state. We've been working with the Office of Behavioral Health, the State Forensic Service, um, and then um, similar to social work, we have placements um, at various hospitals and community mental health centers. And so I think what we're really starting to see is some momentum of us all, all working together on this common cause. And um, it's, it's building, we're leveraging that and we're getting more opportunities. Um, and, you know, as, as evidenced by uh, the, the recent donations that we've received by the Glick, Glickman Family Foundation. So I think we're in a, in a great position uh, to take advantage of some of these uh, new opportunities with the, with the HRSA grant and the donations. Um, and uh, I set up a uh, solid training program, both at the undergraduate and graduate level, that will not only um, create this new pipeline, but I think... Um, expand mental health awareness more broadly. Um, I'm thinking of the undergraduate, one of, one of the new initiatives we're excited we'll be able to do is with these new tenure track hires is we're really looking forward to creating new um, experiential learning experiences, both research experiences and hands-on applied sort of more um, field experiences. Um, and we, we are also supplementing this with a, a new um, professional pathways in psychology course, which is aimed at freshmen. Um, really, we want to introduce them to the different pathways um, there are to being able to impact mental health and the various career trajectories, um, whether it be psychology or, or any other uh, related discipline through these courses, these research experience, these experiential applied um, experiences that students will be able to develop a real clear sense of, of a way forward and a clear pathway for success and a way to get them excited about pursuing careers in mental health and ultimately, you know, create a, a healthier, a healthier main for all of us. Finally, maybe we can hear from all three of you. Just look out, take your crystal ball out, look out five or 10 years. Certainly with pick your issue, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We got, you know, political unrest. There's plastic in the ocean. Pick your issue. Uh, there's no shortage of uh, the need for what you folks are working on. But as you look out five or 10 years from now in rural Maine or, or just in the state overall, what do you hope to see? What, what difference will be made, do you think, as a result of all the work you guys are doing? 
whoever wants to take a crack first. I'll take a crack first. I mean, I, I, I you know, that's a great question. And, you know, my, my tendency is always to be kind of a, a uber optimistic and say, you know, we will, we will cure the state of mental illness and, and thrive on. But, you know, the reality is, I mean, you talked about the challenges and stressors that, that we're all going to, you know, we're facing now, we'll continue to face them or new ones or, or variations. So my, my vision is that people in the state of Maine will, um, it'll be easier for them to recognize their experience and to be able to get help. And and I think that's going to take, you know, a multifaceted approach. And some of it is, uh, you know, the, the role we're trying to play by providing more providers. Uh, but, but you know, just like any, any other big problem, it takes, it's going to take partnerships. So with the state, how do we fund these operations? How are they organized? How do we create more opportunities for, uh, for people um, both to work in these areas and to get services in these areas? My image is that, you know, yes, there will continue to be challenges five and ten years from now. People will feel, feel anxiety and, and depress, depression will, will um, you know, be, be reality. It always it has been. It's a recorded history of humankind. Um, but uh, in the state of Maine, uh, it'll be up to people will know they can get help and there's opportunities there, uh, you know, to address these problems. Sandy, how about you? What do you hope to see? What do you think we'll see? Yeah, well, I think I want to build a little bit on something Jeff said. I do think that the stigma around mental health will continue to decrease, and I think that's really, really important in terms of people getting the help they need and also for there to be funding for the services. I also have uh, great hope for the younger generation in terms of um, their views on, on marginalized groups, um, their openness around um, gender issues, sexuality issues, their anger about racism. And I think that all of those things will help us to provide more equitable care, uh, I hope anyway. And um, also, we, we continue to have great interest at our, in, in people applying for our social work program, so I know that there are people out there that uh, are very empathetic and very, and very much want to help. So I think that will continue. Emily will give you the final word. I guess I'll, I'll bring it back maybe to my vision on, on more of a, a training level or um, what I see is, is our system response to mental health. I'd like to envision that in five to 10 years, some of these emerging collaborations and efforts become stronger and they coalesce and become consolidated, perhaps so that we become a major kind of clearinghouse for the state and serve as, as sort of a center for, for clinical excellence or a center for health and well-being. Um, I'd be really excited. I think that there's a lot of overlapping interests and energy. And if we could leverage that, um, I think that it would, it would yield dividends moving forward. So much great work going on. We, we thank you all for uh, sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Ron. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to any questions or comments you may have about the show. Hit us up at mainquestion at main.edu. We can be found in a lot of places, and the list of outlets for our podcast is growing. Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And now we're on UMaine's Facebook and YouTube pages. This is Ron Lisnett. We'll catch you on one of those channels next time on The Main Question.